Morning, everybody. Scripture that I'd like for you to <clears throat> look at with me is found in Revelation 20 and then uh, a few passages out of 21 and then a passage out of chapter 22. <clears throat> The passage in 20 begins with the throne, great white throne judgment scene, and that begins in verse 11. <clears throat> I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. From 8 on through the 21st verse is the description of heaven, the streets of gold, the gates of a single pearl, and all of the description there of its size. Its size is measured as, and I don't know if this is literal or physical, um, but either way, 
the city, the new city, new city of Jerusalem, city of God, is 15, as far as we can tell with these measurements, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. <clears throat> now, going to verse 22, after that description, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the day and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their, their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written <clears throat> in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We have been looking at end times and recently looked at the whole of the scripture teaching of the day of judgment. And this passage also referred to judgment, the books, the records, being kept, that nothing escapes God. And then after the judgment, <clears throat> this conclusion, and Revelation isn't the only place. Jesus, of course, in Matthew 24 25, spoke of this. Paul spoke to the Thessalonians. Peter spoke about the great coming day of the Lord. Can't read all those scriptures. But the conclusion here is of eternity, an eternity of two different qualities of existence and two different places of existence. Eternity is the underlying issue, meaning we live forever. There is every one of us here today we will never cease to be. Once we were born into this world, going all the way back to Adam, we are everlasting, never dying spirits. Our bodies were originally meant to be everlasting also, Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life, 
which was meant to keep them alive. In the day that they disobeyed God, and God said they would be cut off from his presence, which would mean death. He said, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobey me, you'll die. Now, they didn't die that day physically. In their case, in that day when they lived centuries old, Adam didn't die for 950 years. But he died that day in the garden. So in what sense then does God mean if you disobey me, you die? He, of course, ultimately and most importantly, he means by being cut off from my spirit, your spirits, your spiritual life, your relationship with me is instantly dead. And you're dead spiritually. You're not dead physically. You're still walking, talking, living, going to work, whatever the case might be. But my spirit is dead to God and can't recognize God, can't fellowship with God. Sin has separated us. So spiritual death then ultimately brings physical death. In God's whole plan of salvation is the restoration, and we somehow have to get a hold of this, is the restoration of everything that Satan did to God's creation in deceiving Adam and Eve into disobedience, willful, known disobedience. Not an accident, not a mistake, not something involuntary, but willful breaking of God's known law. That will separate me from God. It separated Adam and Eve. They died spiritually that day. And I don't have time to go into it. But we can immediately see the effects of that spiritual death. What it did to them in their character, in their intellect, in their emotions. It, the, the whole of man is affected negatively by sin. I don't know how long Adam and Eve lived before that, but however long they did, it was a radical shift and an instant one. They immediately became darkened in their minds. They thought that they could hide from God who they knew created all things and in their foolishness they they wove fig leaves aprons to cover their nakedness they foolishly thought that they could hide from God he wouldn't know where they were if they were behind a, a wide enough tree instantly that happened Spiritual death makes us stupid. 
And I don't mean that in a humorous way. We're foolish. We're absolutely dumb. That's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To depart from iniquity is wisdom. It's knowledge. I just start getting the lights to be, it's about <clears throat> the wattage of a refrigerator light, but it's on. When we start to fear God, reverence Him, read His Word, seek Him, when He comes into our heart in the new birth, it's a blaze of light that enlightens His Word, His will, we see the world around us and it begins to make sense why it's like it is and why there is no solution for it in money or education. All of the things that we try to throw at this world's desperate problems don't fix a thing. Why? Because we're stupid and we can't recognize what the real issues are. Until, until we fear God. And when he fills us with his spirit in the new birth, and then when he fills us with his spirit in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, lights come on. And we begin to see. And it's, it's exactly as scripture says, those who were blind can see, not only physically blind, but spiritually blind. Now I see. God then, starting in the garden, had a resolute, never wavering purpose to restore and undo the damage that had been done to us in our hearts, in our spiritual nature, even down to our our bodies because he planned the resurrection to give us a new deathless body, one that is no longer subject to death. He, through Christ on the cross, undoes everything that the enemy has done to us. Jesus was manifest that he might destroy every work of the devil. The good news then is that though sin plunged us in to a pit out of which we cannot get on our own efforts, God's come to our rescue. God has made a way to undo all that Satan and sin have done to us. That includes, of course, his death on Calvary, that includes the resurrection. It includes sending the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, our helper, our guide, our person of Jesus in the sense of the Spirit. And we're to walk in this life and we are to heed God's voice and we are to leave our allegiance to the other being in this world who is 
the sworn enemy of good and God, and that's Satan. And we are to leave our allegiance to him. We're to change teams and join different armies. We're to leave that one and sign up with God. There are only then in this world two masters. There's a fundamental mistake in our thinking. And that is that we are technically, that we're free. We can do what we want. We run our own show. But if we choose, we can make God the Lord of our life and we can follow him and we can live for him. Otherwise, I just go my own way and I do what I want. That is total falsehood. We are not our own master. Humans were never made and never will be their own master. I am made to submit to a master. Either God or Satan. But it is a complete fable and myth that I am running my own show. It is a lie. The enemy is completely enslaved me. Paul said, we are taken captive by Satan to do his will. It is a it is a fairy tale that I'm doing what I do what I want to do. I mentioned before Liz and I have this kind of we have a lot of in jokes from people we've met down through the years in churches. There was a guy, there was a guy that had literally nothing of which to boast, okay? None of us should boast except in Christ, but there are people who, if they did boast, they'd have something to boast, to boast about. They built a great company, they, whatever. This person had none of that. He was a bitter, old person, made his wife's life miserable, hated God and church, and she was a Christian and came to church. And he had kind of a squalor little house in Portland. Nothing of any value, really, as the world would even look at it. And I still remember going and calling on him. He was ill, and he sat on his um, edge of his bed. I talked to him about God and about, you know, getting right with God, so forth, if he got well. And he informed me that he didn't need that at all. He wasn't interested. And then lo looked around and kind of motioned as if he was, you know, motioning over a whole estate or whatever, you know. 80,000 acre ranch. You know, it was an 8 by or 10 by 12 room. He said, I'll have you know. He said, I run this farm. I left. 
I never saw him again. He didn't get well. So I tell my wife, don't cross me, I run this one. How pathetic, though. Sad. Tragic. Someone who had totally bought the myth. I can do what I want. No. No. I'm made to serve a master. I either serve God or I serve Satan. And there's nothing in between. There's no third alternative. There's no way that I can avoid. I either wholeheartedly serve God or I turn away from Him and I turn to the bondage and the chains and the misery and the myths and the foolishness and the depravity of the devil. And one thing we notice, every one of us, remember when we were in a life of sin and still observe it in others, we never stay the same. We never stay the same. We're dynamic. We're not static. We don't just kind of float along in the same way. We either get better as we follow God or we get worse as we walk with the enemy. We get more depraved. We get more wicked. We get more hard in our hearts. We get more, it's more difficult for us to even reach to God. And we get more and more alienated from God. That is the dangerous, degenerative nature of sin. When we finally get to judgment day, and of course, we don't know when we'll die, nor do we know when Jesus will return. We don't know when we'll stand before God. We have no idea. It's the most foolish thing to gamble with that when I do not know. But we will be caught up with no warning to stand before God. And I think in the scripture, a haunting passage is always, and the books were opened. And the books were opened. And the books were opened. God keeps meticulous records. He knows what we said, what we did, what we thought, what we meant what we laughed at. He knows it. He knows it all. And it's written down. He ha God has no loss of memory. The books are opened. What? I, I don't have any way to describe what that must be like. To know that the things that you've done that have not been dealt with between you and God are about to come out. And who will be there? We read here, everybody who's ever lived will be there. Everybody. I want to hear on that day that all you did 
has been blotted out by the blood of Jesus, forgiven because you turned from it, and you switched sides while you were still living and could switch sides. And you walked away from the snare of the devil by God's grace, not on our own power, and joined up with a new family, and I have a new master. It's God himself. And what, what a statement. I didn't stop to mention it when we were reading earlier. What a thought that God, as big as God is, calls the stars by their names. It says, God's dwelling place is with man, with us. That God prefers, if he gets a choice, I'd like to live with you guys. I want to be your neighbors. I want to live with you. We don't deserve any of that. But God says, I love you. I want to live my dwelling place. My chosen dwelling place is with you. That's the greatest blessing we could ever think of. That's why Jesus said, don't fret. After he, or as he was facing the cross, and then after he ascended back into heaven, he said, don't worry. <clears throat> don't be troubled. Don't fret about it. I'm going to make a place for you so that where I am, you can be also. That's his purpose. Now, we have to face then <clears throat> the, the unpleasant destiny the unpleasant place of the two places, and that's hell. There is a hell. It is rarely, rarely, if ever, spoken about anymore. We have, in much of the church, or should I should say most, most of the church, we know better then God knows. See, he doesn't know how to make the gospel attractive enough and sweeten it enough so that people will take it. So we'll have to, we have to rearrange it for him. And one of the things we must immediately get rid of is any notion of God being angry, even though the Bible says over 500 times it describes him as being angry, furious, wrathful. That's, that's the God we have, and that's his attitude towards sin and rebellion. We don't want to talk about that. <clears throat> and we absolutely erase completely the doctrine of hell. Jesus spoke more about hell, however, than any of the Old Testament prophets or any of the New Testament apostles. Jesus talked more about it. There are 12 times in the New Testament where the word Gehenna, and I'll maybe get to that in a minute, 
is used to describe hell. Gehenna was the place in Jerusalem of the public dump, a deep ravine off of the edge of the city limits. And things were dumped down in there. The fires always smoldered. And the acrid smoke of that being on the south and west edge of Jerusalem and the breeze coming off the Mediterranean would blow that over the city. And people smelled that awful stench. Jesus said, Gehenna is where the wicked go. And he said, their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. It's always there. Always, always, forever. No escape. Twelve times that word is used in the whole New Testament. Eleven times by Jesus. Jesus says to us, hell and destruction are in front of me, meaning I see it. How much more, he said then, do I look at the hearts of the children of men, not wanting them to go there? I think it's so significant that no one spoke in the New Testament more about eternal punishment than Jesus because he's the only one that's seen it. He knows what it's like. He's seen it. He also, as God, prepared it for the devil and his angels. That tells us something else. God never intended a human being to go there. That's something I want us to get a hold of. Hell wasn't created for you or for me. Never, never did God intend for a human to go there. In the rebellion that occurred in heaven, about which we know a little, but not very much, when Satan said, I will be God myself, got how many ever angels to go along with him? They were thrown out of heaven, and Jesus spoke of that. He said, I saw Satan cast out with his angels, fell like lightning from heaven. And at that moment, hell was created as an abode for the devil and for his angels. It was not created for people. But since we live forever, we can't ever die. We can never cease to be. We will live for all of eternity. Every one of us here will live forever. We either live with the master we chose in this life, who's God, or the master we chose, who's Satan. We get to go live with our master. We get to go live with the one we chose to follow. Is that fair? God is always picked on, accused by people. Why would a loving God even make a hell? He didn't make it for people. Remember that. He didn't make it for people. Second, he spends our whole life pleading with us, warning us, 
He says, I stand up and hold out my hands and plead with a rebellious people. He does everything he can to get me to stop following that master who's, who takes us eventually to his home. He says, follow me. And I will take you to where I dwell. It's really quite simple and it is extremely just and fair. People say, similarly, why would God send somebody? He doesn't send anybody to hell. God sends nobody to hell. They finally are given their lifelong insistence on choosing. That's who I want to follow. Okay? And an oft-mentioned quote, C.W. C.W. Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, so clear. We will either voluntarily in this life say to God, Thy will be done. Or he will finally, I think reluctantly, at judgment, say to us, Thy will be done. You finally got your way against everything I could try to do. Everything I could plead with you. Every roadblock I put in front of your pathway. Every Christian I put in your pathway. All I tried to do to warn you but you kept doing it. That's just then. I don't say that gleefully at all. God never says it gleefully. But it is perfectly just that if we insist on being rebels in God's kingdom while we eat of his table and we breathe his air and we live the life that he gave us and we use all of that to defy him, it is totally just, fair, right. It is justice that we go to hell. That's what we want. Finally then, he gives us as free moral agents made in his image and likeness our will. He's never, ever trampled over a human will. He does not want involuntary or coerced or demanded or forced love and obedience, reverence, affection, you wouldn't. None of us would, none of us want to find ourselves with a spouse who is forced to be with us. Is under some kind of threat that they have to be our spouse for all of our days. That, that's unthinkable. God does not want forced love and obedience, reverence, service. It's voluntary. Then it means something. God's whole aim then is to escape 
escape, turn, repent, go the other direction, walk with him. We know this. We know this about hell. Now the Lord willing will talk about heaven next week. But we have to face hell. We have to face the reality of it. It is real. And God's whole system is to keep me from going there. His aim then is for me to do what Psalm, Psalm 57 says, I thought on my ways. And the word for thought there is literally to map out, to trace out on a map. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto your testimonies, to your word, to your will. That's, that's on our hands. Map out where the path you're taking today will lead you. And God's faithful to tell us right now where it'll lead us. Turn my feet to God's paths, God's word, God's ways when I recognize I'm on the wrong path. I'm on the wrong road. God help us to be sober and mull over where we're headed. Just because we're in church, just because we may have some Christian principles, we may profess to be Christians and even... Listen, when I was on the road to hell as a 20-year-old, I bet you I could have preached some pretty good sermons. Because I believed the truth. I knew there was a God. I never went down that stupid route. I knew there was a God. <clears throat> I knew he was real. I knew he was good. I saw it lived out in my, in my home. And I knew, I knew too many people that walked with God to ever think or convince myself that there wasn't a God, that this was all just um, a myth. I was a, I, I've told maybe you. I was a, I was a full-blown atheist for probably 15 seconds. I was walking home from the little corner store with a jug of milk where my parents sent me, and it was dark, and I was looking up at the sky, and I was looking at the stars, and I was thinking just about my life. I was miserable, and I was still, I don't know then, I was probably 17 or 18, and I just thought, you know, Maybe there just isn't a God. Maybe I'm, I don't have to, maybe I'm not bad. Maybe it isn't that I've done a lot of things I shouldn't have done that God wouldn't want me to do. I don't know. Wouldn't it be good if there just even wasn't a God? I don't know how many squares of the sidewalk I crossed thinking that. I, it was one of those few times when many of us, most of us have had, where you feel almost like you heard an audible voice. It was as real as can be. I remember saying it again. I remember I had the milk jug in my hand. I, there, there may not be a God. 
I know it was the Holy Spirit talked to me as plain as day. And it wasn't kind. It wasn't like he was weeping over me and saying, oh, widow Danny. No. This is what I heard, and I heard it as real as I'm talking to you today. Knock it off. You know better than that. That's what I heard. And I know it was God. And I thought, yeah, yeah, okay. I know. It's ridiculous. There's a God. He was tracking me that night. He does the same thing with every one of us. And he's that close. He knows our thoughts. He knows our stupid thoughts. He knows everything. And he's faithful. Listen to him. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray. While I'm praying. If there's anyone here that knows I'm not on the right track and I know it. I need to get on the right track. Thankfully, we have that opportunity. Of course, people can pray in your own, where you're seated. But I think sometimes God wants us also to publicly step out, come to the front, kneel. And by doing that, I'm saying, Lord, publicly, I'm done. I'm done going the other way. I want to go this way. And I don't want to turn back. So while I pray, if there's anyone that wants to come and kneel here and pray, please do so. Father in heaven, you are the everlasting God. You're faithful. You love us enough to die for us. I'm so grateful that you never stop talking to us, tugging at our hearts, telling us when we are going astray because you know where that path will ultimately lead us. Help us listen to your voice today. There's people here today, and I'm confident there are, that know if I keep walking, if I don't change the path I'm on, as I map out the one I'm on right now, I won't make it to heaven. Lord, help us take this deadly earnest And follow you and do what you tell us to do. Whatsoever you say unto us, may we do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.